Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. My name is Katrina Stanton. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. And today we're talking about effective altruism. Woo woo. Yep. Guys, what's effective altruism? I'm really how glad is you it asked. Di- how is it different than non-effective? <laughs> <laughs> how is it different than normal altruism? They should really call the alternative non-effective altruism. Yeah, but that's, that's very um, pejorative. It makes it sound bad. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going for. Okay. We don't want to make people feel bad for being altruistic, though. <laughs> we'll find we'll find out okay uh so effective altruism is the idea that if you have a set amount of money and you want to use that money to help people you should probably be using that money in the most effective way possible so if for example you have enough money to buy a meal for one child that is good but if you can buy a less expensive but more nutritious meal and feed 10 children with the same amount of money that's 10 times better so basically it means shopping around it can mean shopping around, yeah. For your specifically for your charity dollars. Yes. How about for how you use your time? That is also very important. Did we want to start with the charity dollars before we went to time? Well, I'm wondering what what are the different aspects of effective altruism? So there's how you spend your charity dollars, mm-hmm. and then how big of a component of it is how you spend your time mm-hmm. as a human being doing human stuff. Sure. So I think one thing to consider is that basically if you're on board for effective altruism or if you're part of the target audience, you're kind of already inclined to be a charitable person. We can talk about why people, at least in my view, have an obligation to be charitable, but that might be an aside. But as far no, as... No, 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 that That is very interesting. I want to know, because uh, I, I think that it is good to be charitable, but I'm not sure about this obligation thing. Why do you think there's an obligation to be charitable? Um. Well, sometimes when you're little, people tell you that you have to. Yes. And then you forget that you don't actually have to. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of things people told me when I was little, and a lot of them were lies. <laughs> this might be one of those. I think it's hard to draw a defensible position to say, you know what, that's not my problem. Uh, if you see someone else suffering, or even if you can't see them, but you know that they are. And that to know real sacrifice to yourself, you can save them or help them in a in a huge way. Uh, okay, so no sacrifice to yourself is not a thing that happens in the real world. It's like a spherical cow. Well, I said, like, did I say no sacrifice? You did say no sacrifice. I, I should have said not sacrificing anything of comparable moral worth. How's that sound? That is still not good because there's an infinite amount of need out there. Okay, not literally infinite. There is a functionally infinite amount of need out there in the world. Are you saying that you are obligated to spend your entire life doing nothing but helping the most destitute? Um, it's a slippery slope, right? So, uh... <laughs> It's hard to to know where to draw the line, but I think that I think if I think if you're making fifty five thousand dollars a year, you're in the top one percent of the world's population in earning. Okay, and obviously that's adjusted for global, not for whatever country you're currently in. Probably that's mean income in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. So if you're making average income in the U.S., you're making more than ninety nine percent of people on the planet. I guess as far as why you should be helping the bottom percent or the bottom ten percent or twenty five percent. You can't solve it all yourself, but that's like um, thought experiments and analogies are useful here, right? Uh, burning buildings and buses are popular thought experiments. If there's a uh, a school bus on fire, you know, you only have time to grab a kid in each arm. But because you can't grab all 30 of them, do you just say, eh, fuck it, not my problem? Or do you go grab a couple? You go grab a couple if you can. That's or, but there's or, a difference between a burning bus in front of me and, I don't know, one million people in a country across the ocean. Is there? What's the, what's the, so these are all the, the objections, I guess, to, to giving charity at all, but I guess diving into what the differences are, I think that they're 
psychologically important differences, but not morally important differences. Are you talking about the difference between differences between effective altruism and other forms of giving charitably? I'm actually just meaning just giving at all. Okay. Uh, I think so. Like I said, you're not going to get somebody who's against philanthropy in general to be a, to be an effective altruist, right? I guess that's the first hurdle to overcome. If you're if you don't feel like you're have any duty or some people, I guess... Uh, no, I, I agree with you. Effective altruism is aimed at people who are already looking to be altruistic. It just it seemed strange that you started right off with a very strong claim that everyone has an obligation to, to be altruistic, whereas I just think it is a good thing to be altruistic. Yeah, I think it depends on your flavor. And I, I, I guess I don't want to beat that point home too much. Um, I, I think a case can certainly be made for... I was just going to say, for all you anti-charity people out there, just be glad that Stephen is not the king of the world, yeah. or he would force you to give to charity. Right. No, I would just say you're not living a morally good life if you're dying with a million dollars buried with you, and the people around you are dying, and they could use that money to live, right? So, And that's, that's an extreme hyperbole example, but that's sort of the case that a lot of us are in. We're like, you know what? I think I've earned this $60,000 car, or this... Uh, um, I guess most of us aren't buying yachts, but whatever. And yes, while this car, uh, while my car that I have now is only five years old and it works great, I think I work hard. I've this is my money. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy this car, and I know that a lot of people are gonna die because I'm not giving it to them. But I deserve this car more than they deserve to live. I think is kind of what you're saying if you're not feeling any compulsion to be charitable. Well, Do you think about that every time you buy something for yourself? Right. Yes. Do and you? I, I mean, so I still don't beat myself up. And there, there is a midline road to go here, and that's that's where I think the important ground is to cover. And that's why I wish we didn't dive too much into this at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I so, just want to give you a hard time. No, no, you're fine. Uh, so, I mean, well, it is this, that is kind of the Singarian view, right? Yeah, and so it's tough because, like, every every time I go to Starbucks or I buy a, I got dinner or something, or even I guess buy more than just like base food, I'm deciding. You know what? This frappuccino is worth more than saving x percent of of lives right whether it's a number of lives total or a fraction of a life you're still saying me enjoying the starbucks for the next 20 minutes is more important than helping somebody in extreme poverty and that seems like a weird thing to say so i guess it's hard for me to, to see how you feel like and especially if you gave nothing your entire life and you made those decisions for every time you spent money and like i said if you if you ended up with you know i guess more than you needed yeah. um see, down I the line I, I, I don't I don't think that that I think that's an unhealthy way to look at things because it leads to endless guilt unless you are literally as destitute as the worst people off in the world, which humans can't live their lives that way. But I have what I call the uh, five dollars of caring rule where uh, this this came up when the oh, what was the pipeline going under standing rock uh, when they were trying to put the oil pipeline through standing rock and a bunch of people were doing their, you know, Facebook posting activism and I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy about your Facebook posting and all, but have you given $5? Because I realize there are people in the U.S. who really can't afford $5 to give to a charity. It would be like taking $5 away from their children's medicine or food fund, but not anyone that I know. And I, I like to say to them, I don't believe you care about an issue unless you care about it more than you care about $5. So once you've given $5 to something, I'm totally on board with your right to complain and post as much as you want. But if you haven't given at least $5, I'm going to call bullshit. Is that an Ineash original, the $5? As far as I know. <laughs> I may have picked it up somewhere else and just forgotten. Okay. I think that that's a fine metric. And to be perfectly straightforward, I agree that it's hard for me to find the, the logical point to stop as far as, you know, if I'm giving 10% of my income to... 
I guess, alleviating suffering and the worst, and I guess in the worst population or the most suffering populations on the world, um, someone can say, well, come on, 11%, (laughs) you know, is why is 10% your line? And I, there are, I think there are good consequential reasons for saying that I'm going to draw a line, some arbitrary place that keeps me still happy and relatively affluent. But that said, it seems as far as a personal note, like where, where do I get off buying a fancy new car? You know, especially like, I guess I need a car to get to work, you know, rather than the bus or something, but why not get this $5,000 car as opposed to this $35,000 car? Mm -hmm. But transitioning, I guess, into effective, into effective altruism, the stopping point, I'm sorry. Um, I was thinking you mentioned Singarian, Peter Mm -hmm. Singer, who I believe is associated with the website, the life, life you can save. I believe so. So could you tell us a little bit more about Peter Singer? Do you want to hit Peter Singer? Sure. Okay. I know you're more of a Singer fan than I am. Yeah. And Peter Singer is also a major philosophical proponent of effective altruism. Yeah. He has been arguing for people to get off their asses and do stuff since like the 1970s. Should we Um, start with the um, classical example of... Yeah. Yeah. Um, But he also was the guy behind uh, All Animals Are Equal. And he's a big proponent of the animal rights movement uh, for the same reasons he's he's a proponent of effective altruism. He is an Australian philosopher of ethics. I think he does teaching positions there and, and in Europe. His famous thought experiment is the the kid in the shallow pond. So you're walking through the park and whatever, it's six in the morning. There's no one else around is, is another important aspect to it. And you see a kid flapping away in the pond. And as you get closer, you realize that they're not just playing, they're struggling to keep their head above water and they're clearly losing. So you can run in and save them, sacrificing your $200 pair of shoes, or I guess maybe whatever, your, your outfit, however much it costs, you know, pants down are going to be ruined and you're going to be late for work. And they, they've done surveys on this, but something like 95% of people say, well, of course you have to run in there and save them. You'd be, be a, you'd be a complete monster not to. Even if they're $2,000 shoes. Yeah. And so his conclusion then is, okay, so we've, we've agreed that that child's life is worth more than your stuff or the inconvenience of being late to work one day. And so then he wonders, well, what's the difference between that kid and a kid dying in sub-Saharan Africa? And Singer argues that there's no clear moral difference. There are psychological differences, but there's not a morally salient reason that that kid's special in the thought experiment, as opposed to all the ones that are actually suffering in the real world. It's the same difference between a pig and a dog. It is? Oh, you mean in the sense that we care about dogs just because? Yes. Um, Maybe. Like, there is something psychologically salient in us about watching someone die and knowing that it would be mildly inconvenient to save them. And if you never have to know that they're there, then, or if you, I guess if you know, but you never have to see them, you're never forced to watch a video or something, then that's important, right? At what point does our personal responsibility switch trip? Right. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a wonderful example from utilitarian grounds because it points out the fact that all lives are equal and there's no good reason to privilege one life over another. But I do think that it ignores the whole moral uh, sphere of responsibility thing where if you see a child drowning and you're the only one that can save them and you're nearby, you do have a responsibility to go and try to save them. Whereas uh, with him trying to generalize this, he his example would have to be that there's over one million pawns around you, each one with a child within it, and all you can do is spend your entire life trying to save children until you die of exhaustion. Which which would be much closer to what the real world actually is. And at that point, you have to start thinking, okay, if I'm taking, embarking on a long-term 1 million child-saving project, I need breaks. I need to uh, make sure I have e- food and clothing and such. 
I think Singer would agree with you on those. And I, I, I don't think so. And so that is why people generally prioritize people that are close to them that they can save more easily. Because they, they didn't actually, what, what specifically? Well, you, you have a moral responsibility merely due to the fact that you are physically closer. I see. Or that you're the only person there. Right. Yeah, so that's, bystander effect is a big part of that. Bystander effect is the, the phenomena whereby people don't act in emergencies if they're with people who, or I guess if they're with people. Uh, alone, you get people to respond to like somebody falling off a ladder and some, they, there's all kinds of fun experiments you can check out the Wikipedia page and bystander effect. But um, that's one aspect of it is that if you're surrounded by people who also aren't doing anything, well, why should I be the one to do something? Well, but, um, I mean, but there's also the thing that you can't save everyone unless you're God. And while the classic answer is to hurry up and become God, that's not entirely feasible in the immediate moment. That's so, the classic answer, huh? <laughs> among certain circles. Yeah, in, in some groups. Yeah. Um, so given that if you can't do that, I guess the, the response would be, okay, so you can't save all million, but you can save 10. Mm-hmm. And why shouldn't you be doing that? Right. You could even do that with less cost to your, or less, um, I guess, inconvenience to yourself than running into one pond. Yeah. Right. So that's where the effective part comes in. Well, yeah, but I, I guess I'm also trying to just just to kick back on that. Just because there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering out there doesn't mean that you can do literally nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that standard parable about someone throwing starfish back into the into the ocean on the beach, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, there's so many. What are you What are you doing wasting your time? Well, what difference does it make? Exactly. And then the the person picks up one more, throws it in, and says it made the world a difference to that one. Interesting. I didn't know that that was a parable. It is a very famous biolog biology story, ecology story. Maybe it's been about predator prey interactions. Wait, what? Yeah, it's the scientists went out on the seashore and threw the the predatory starfish out into the ocean, uh, creating a place where the I guess the shellfish that the starfish had been eating could live in enemy free space. And then they looked at the impacts of that. Wait, this is a thing that actually happened? Yes. Oh I, I heard about Holy it. Holy crap, I'd only heard about it as a moral parable. Same. And I think that, that the stress of the, the parable version is different than just like, there was no mention of like the test on the environment and stuff. It was more about just like saving lives of little starfish in the cute little story version. Yeah. But the, but the real version is interesting too. Yeah, they, were, they were harming those starfish, or okay. at least taking them away from a very plentiful food source. Hmm. A womp. So yeah, that that's what I'd say to that, Ignash, is that yes, you can't save all million of them, but you can save some of them. And why shouldn't you do that? And I agree. Oh, all right. All uh, right. So we have figured out why charity. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we've made an apo- emotional appeal, but I get that's all you really have with charity, right? Don't be a monster. <laughs> but we're here to talk about effective altruism. Yes. Now, effective altruism is distinct from giving to charity because a lot of times the charities that we give to are determined by emotional appeals, like what you're just talking about. What's close to you? What? what impacts you, what you feel like you can have the most impact on. Can I give my favorite example of an ineffective charity? And it's my favorite example because it happened to me personally. Yes. Go for it. Okay. So uh, the place that I used to work has a program where every year they want everyone in the office to contribute eight hours of labor to a charity of some kind. And they give the, they pay them for this eight hours. And it's so that they can say, you know, at their reports at the end of the year, we paid our employees this many hours to do uh, volunteer work in the community. Look at how great we are. It's a good PR issue. And they probably get a tax write-off on it too, but it's mainly for the PR. Anyway, so my employer has the incentive to 
pay their employees for a number of hours of charity every year. But they don't really care where the charity happens. They just want charity to happen. So they bring some charities into the office to make it even easier for people. You don't have to go out anywhere. We will bring charities to you. And one of the charities that is fairly popular is, I'm just going to call it the blanket tying charity. What they do, uh, these people come in with a whole lot of blankets, fairly thin blankets. They're not like uh, these big comforter things. And uh, they will take one blanket and they will layer it on another blanket. And the job of the people in the office that have gone into the lunchroom to volunteer for an hour to do this is to cut... Make make like three inch incisions all around all the sides of the blankets. Fringes. Fringes, exactly. And uh, then tie the fringes together. So now what was two blankets is one blanket. That is literally the charity. <laughs> and it infuriates me because, first of all, you have not added any practical value at all. The two blankets tied together are just as warm as two blankets not tied together. If anything, you've made them less useful because before, if you were too hot, you could remove one of the blankets and now you can no longer do that. <laughs> uh, they have added aesthetic value, I will admit. They, the ones with the fringes tied together do look a little prettier. But it is the worst use of human labor I've ever seen in my life for a quote-unquote charitable cause. Did those charity people explain to you why they were tying the blankets together? They did not. Is there a good reason to do that? I'm guessing. (laughs) Otherwise, why would they do that? I don't know. I think it's just to make people feel good. Look, we did a nice thing for the poor people. We made their blankets prettier. So what are what's the what's the impact of that other than now you have two blankets that are tied together? um, You have some people who feel better about themselves. Yes. You have a company that has now spent more time on charity. Mm hmm. Some people are warmer, maybe. They, They would have been warmer anyway. But the thing that warms them is slightly prettier now. Yeah, and that's and that their means environment something. has beautified a little bit now. So it is in, it it isn't nothing, but it is extremely ineffective. Or and, or is it negative? Because now the people who the people your coworkers who have spent that time tying blankets together are going to feel like they don't have to spend any time doing something else that might be more effective. Exactly. Or giving money because now they've absolve themselves of their need to participate in charity yeah and if they were if they were trying to fulfill our company's eight hours a year mandate then that is one less hour that they have used for something that can actually make a difference in someone's life i i use this as the extreme example but there's somewhat less extreme example as one year i went down to the food bank and i worked basically as a stalker in the warehouse for four hours which i mean was fun and kind of a bonding experience but it is it's basically minimum wage labor And the classic argument, not classic, an argument from effective (laughs) altruism is that I, as an accountant, could spend four hours of labor moving boxes, or I could spend those four hours working and take the money that I make working to hire someone to do that for me for 12 hours, since I, in theory, make at least three times minimum wage or three times what a, um, a stalker would be making. Yeah, or you could become the accountant for the soup kitchen. Exactly. Or, or a pantry. I mean, if, if I am an amazing stalker, and that is where my comparative advantage lies in the workplace, and I want to be charitable, I should go to work for the charity being their stalker, making their stalking more effective and getting paid for it at the same time. If I'm better at doing accounting, I should either do accounting for them or work you know, another hour as an accountant and donate the money instead. So the, the thing is, high-functioning economies have a great... Uh, efficiencies from specialization in labor. And when we go and contribute 
highly skilled people's labor for really low skill tasks, we are we're probably making those people feel better and making them feel in touch with their community, which are also important things. But that should be taken um, not as a replacement for doing the more effective thing of giving money, which will help you buy many hours of labor rather than just your one. Okay, so effective altruism, it's specifically about giving money. It because be. that is, in most cases, the most effective way to make a difference, right? Usually. There's the also the 80,000 hours group, which uh, helps steer people into careers that do take advantage of what they are good at to be uh, charitable and effective in the world of altruism in a labor way, rather than just donating money. I believe that's 80,000 hours, right? 80,000 hours, yeah, is uh, one of Will McCaskill's charities. And it comes from the number of work hours worked in the typical first world working lifetime. Yeah. So this, this is kind of brings in one of the, the standard kickbacks to effective altruism that people get. So, but Inyash, where do you get off telling me that my time moving boxes or tying blankets isn't, where do you get off telling me where I can get my warm fuzzies from? Uh, I'm not trying to tell you where you can get your warm fuzzies from. You can do whatever you want. I'm merely saying if you want to be effective and help the most number of people, uh, if that is the thing you care about, you should maybe do a little bit of work to verify that you are actually helping the most number of people. I mean, if all you care about is the sense of community and the bonding, then go for it. I Do not hold that against you, especially since you are making some difference. I do not want to be the enemy of the good by demanding perfection. But the effective altruism movement is for and by people who are really concerned about the effectiveness. They want their one-hour labor or their $100 that they're donating to do the most good it can do with that time or that money. What about somebody who might argue that the time that they spent tying blankets together inspired them to research effective charities and give much more than they otherwise would have? Does that make it effective? Kind of by accident, I think. I mean, you would think that even just something like showing them a picture of the family you saved with, like, you know, giving 5% of your paycheck one month or something would be more of a drive to do that than kind of what just happened by accident from, from tying blankets or moving boxes. Well, you might think that intuitively, but is there research to back that up? I don't know. Um, I know that there was a push by an organization I can't remember, but everyone remembers these commercials probably from 10 years ago where, you know, you can sponsor this child, this child for $20 a month, which is less than a dollar a day. You'll put them to school, you'll feed them, you'll clothe them, and... You know, in exchange, you would get like postcards from that actual human, yeah. and that turned out to be pretty psychologically satisfying for people. Oh, did it? Um, yeah, I think for for the most part, especially like I must be a weird person because I those turned me off. Maybe like because you feel bad because it's like, oh man, I'm just imagining all the people that you know you walk past on your way to school or something. No, because I didn't <laughs> want postcards oh, for yeah. people. I'm, I'm pretty sure you can opt out, okay. and then that way too, that money probably gets recycled back into it. And I'm not sure if that's this particular charity or, or other ones, but there are there are um, like when you're. Uh, donating to Oxfam, they could say, do you want status updates from the stuff that you're doing? I'm like, no, save postage. I don't really care. I've, I've given. So that's a box you can check on their website. From the fundraising world, I can also confirm that that's the, the standard knowledge is that people want to see where their money's going. The more specific, the better. Okay. The more people can connect, the better. So that if you can help somebody connect with somebody across the world as strongly as they could connect to somebody in their community that they're helping, then and then that's a great thing. Yeah. It makes the child more like the child in the pond rather than the one of the million nameless, faceless people on the, across the world, right? Exactly. I think one of the major uh, criticisms that EA does get is people say, why are you sending all my dollars overseas? 
And what kind of monster are you, I guess, would be the question. <laughs> well, I mean, th- my, my answer is because it's much cheaper to save lives overseas, and I want to save more lives per dollar, but a lot of people want to uh, help their community more than they want to ship the money overseas. Yeah, that always sort of makes me raise my eyebrows, too, because I'm wondering how well off do they really want everybody before, like, all right, now it's acceptable, everyone's well enough off, now you can start donating money yeah, overseas. Yeah, or... How are they? Why are they valuing lives differently locally versus um, versus far away versus globally? I don't know. That's another one of the psychological differences between the kid in your neighborhood dying in that pond and one of the ones across the ocean, right? Hmm. You you feel more attached just as a quirk of our evolutionary heritage to people physically near you, which is to me not very morally salient, but psychologically it's very important. I think one of the, my main response to people, uh, yeah, it's also way cheaper. You know, I could pay off somebody's uh, medical bills in the United States, you know, if they needed a life-saving surgery, and I could, I could write a $250,000 check and cover their medical expenses, or I can save tens or thousands of lives overseas, mm-hmm. and it's not super clear to me why I should not maximize just the number of lives saved, but the other thing to consider is that people in the developed world even those in like the bottom rung of our society are still doing way better than people in the bottom rung of the world society. Uh, they have access to emergency medical care. They can get all the water they need, clean water. They typically have enough access to food that they're not starving to death. You know, and I mean, it, it, it's it's calloused maybe to walk by somebody on the street and say, you know what, I've got 10 bucks, but this is actually part of my EA budget. Sorry. But the reality is that that person is not suffering as much as some people are in the world. Yeah, you know, what you just said reminded me of when we were talking about signaling and charity is signaling. So it's a much stronger signal when you can have local buildings named after you and um, and plaques and or even if you're not even if it's not something visible like that, where people know that you've donated and that you can get some of that back in person. Yeah. Some of the status. Some of charity does seem to be the fact that it does give you a reputation boost when you do it. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, though, because it gives people a motivation to give to charity if you get some status. That's that's one of the reasons that, as far as I know, the EA community has been pushing for people to publicly state how much they're giving so that they can get praised for that by their peers. I think it's also not just praise, but there's the other really important factor there that if I see that Enosh, you're giving 20% of your income, that might inspire me to give 20% of my income. Just and then, for the record, I am not giving 20% <laughs> of my income. Hypothetically. Okay. Uh, let's say we're both making a lot of money. We both have tons of expendable income and we decide that that's the best use of it. Or rather you do. Mm-hmm. And then me seeing, you know, whether it's a sense of, you know, social inadequacy or just me feeling like, hey, I could be as cool as you are by doing this thing too. I'll start donating my money. And then you've by being vocal about it, you've doubled your life impact yeah. by by getting at least one other person to donate too. That is literally the entire idea behind crowdfunding. Well, no, that and uh, the power of the viral, <laughs> the power of the crowd. In that Small case, donations. Uh, I believe you said that you have taken the Giving What We Can pledge. I have. Would you like to tell the audience what the Giving What We Can pledge is? Sure. Um, so you can go look up Giving What, giving what We Can. Mm-hmm. Um, look up giving it what we can online and you can take a pledge to give 10% of your income every year. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm definitely doing it this year. But then it's it's actually kind of tricky because I've I've worked in nonprofits for as long as I've worked and I'm, I'm currently working for a nonprofit and I'm currently on the board of a nonprofit. Oh. 
And then I realized that you didn't know that. No, congratulations. For, I didn't realize you were on the board. It's been two years. They- <laughs> yeah. Now she's being well, paid. She would have to be told me. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Maybe I'll get you to give a little bit. <laughs> Maybe I'll get you to our next event. I'll, I'll let you know about it later. Okay. But I realize, you know, as a board member, I am responsible for giving a significant donation to that organization. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I want to give the same amount that I've been giving every year. But last year, I didn't have a job all year. So I didn't have much in the way of income. And once I had given to that organization, I was already at 14% of what I what I had brought in. Yeah. It, so I was like, uh-oh. That's, this isn't... They, they require you to donate a certain amount of money every year? Like to stay on the board? It doesn't have to be a certain amount of money, but I don't want to disappoint anybody. Okay. You know. No, I, I do, yes. I mean, not from personal experience, but I can sympathize. But then I, I was like, oh, no, I've given, I don't have more money to give. Well, luckily, somebody gave me some money, more money, and I was able to give more to other organizations. But um, And just to clarify, the giving what we can pledge is that uh, you'd be giving 10% to effective, what you consider effective charities. What you charities. consider effective charities. And so now I'm wondering, so I think I think I get out of it all right just because I didn't have an income. Yeah. Last year? No, if you don't if have you don't an income. Have an income. <laughs> I mean, technically, I'm giving 100% of my income right now. <laughs> well, I, I, had a mi- I had a minor income, but it was really minor. So for students and, and the unemployed, I think they have it at 1% or something like that. So, the, so I think I get through on a technicality just for last year. And keep in mind, too, I think that especially with the giving what you can pledge, it is giving what you can, and it scales based on how much you earn. If you're a student working part-time and you're making $12,000 a year, Singer's not going to, or it was Singer who put this charity on online, but in, in this case, he's not going to say, you should give $1,200. Uh, he's going to say, give 20 bucks or whatever, right? So, so I'm, well, I'm not a, familiar with giving what we can, but I thought it was actually 10%. It is. It is. Absolutely, you are pledging to give ten percent, unless you're a student or you know working part time, or yeah. Um, in which case it scales down to one percent. So I get away with it that past year, but now I'm looking forward and I'm like, well, I still need to give to these charities that are not on the list of the most effective charities, right? And no, I mean- that I still really care about, and I still work hard to benefit them and their causes. I think that's why it's uh, an effective signal because it is costly and hard to fake. That I am not uh, a giving what we can uh, pledged person because I'm not sure of my financial situation, but I do admire people who are because I realize 10% is a fair chunk of change. Yeah. Also, I don't, is it still, <laughs> do, can I still fulfill the pledge if at the last minute somebody gives me a bunch of money and then I give all of that to charity? Probably. Uh, I believe the U.S. government does consider gifts to be income, and they tax it as such. So if you got a bunch of income as a gift and then you donated it, then yes. (laughs) (laughs) It counts as your donation. I must Uh, be thinking of a different scale then, because I seem to remember one, and this was a proposal that I read about years ago, but it was something like, you know, 1% for bottom, you know, for for poor people in in nice countries, and up to like a third of people earning over a million dollars. So if this is, I thought they gave them... I thought that was the giving what you can, but I'm thinking of a different one that does scale with income. Hmm. The whole point was you put in how much you earned and it would do some back end calculation that they had worked out in advance 
and it would tell you if you're making $5 million a year, you can probably afford to live off of 67% of that. Whereas if you're making $10,000 a year, you can probably not afford to work on or to live on 67% of that. So anyway, different things, but yeah, yeah. I think that the idea behind behind this particular pledge, giving what you can, is that anybody can do it. Um, I know that when I was in middle school and we were, we were doing budgets off of just a high school education, you know, future budgets, you have a high school education, you get a job as a secretary or a receptionist. I remember I was I was finding one that was 12000 a year. And the rule was you donate, I believe it was 12% of your income to charity. And that's non-negotiable. And I remember asking, I'm having trouble, you know, buying the food or finding an apartment that I can afford. Um, Can I, can I change the charity level? No. Why wouldn't they let you change the charity level? Our teacher just wouldn't let us change the charity level. Yeah. But why? Because that was, that was the necessary lowest charity amount was 12%. Damn. Of your income. Okay. Yeah. So if more people had gone through Mr. Bonnell's class, then they might have understood. That strikes me as an atypical position to take with like middle school budgeting. I can uh, honestly say not only have I never given 12% of an, my income in one year to anyone, I don't think I know anyone who has either, with the possible exception of Katrina. So now I do. But yeah, that's that's a lot of money. I always do, but it really helps that I haven't had high-paying jobs. I don't know. I think that makes in, it in harder terms of because, percentage. yeah, because <laughs> the the more the less you make, the more that money means to you. For other people, <laughs> yeah. Some 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 people are in a situation where like they need to save for retirement. It's like if you can put away ten percent a year so that you don't have to die the month the month that you quit working when you're seventy five. Yeah, that's that's one reason to to not give everything, and that's that's sort of a, a tricky spot too, right? Um, so one of the other classical comebacks to effective altruism, or I guess to extreme giving in general, is you know should I give this now or should I wait to give it later? You know, especially if I want to put it in compound interest over forty years, et cetera, et cetera. There's something to be said for that if you feel like, yes, I will actually budget this and I will actually commit to giving and I can make a big difference later. But there's also the, the thing to consider that there are people dying now that you can help. Also, that, your money given now is worth more to those charities than later. Yeah. Than the same amount later. Exactly. Well, I think the goal was that they'd give something more later or something. If Warren Buffett had given his first million dollars, he couldn't give his $31 billion that he he's given. So... If you're as good, it worked out. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're as good of an investor and business person (laughs) as Warren Buffett, hold on to it. (laughs) No one is. Even even if you have to wait thirty years, if you can uh, give a thousand times what you're planning on giving, that's awesome. Uh, But since almost no one fits in that that slot there, uh, that's something to consider. If if you have a low risk course already set out, like generally uh, going into well, from back when I was going to college, this was the case. I hear it's not quite the case anymore, but it used to be the case that if you go into college, uh, that is worth your four years of time and money to sink all of that into college because you will make so much more for having the college degree than using that money to donate to effective charities instead, because you would be doing less good overall with your life if you don't get that college degree. Ineos, you mentioned in a previous episode that... Any moral system that requires you to to really super disadvantage yourself is is not going to catch on, mm-hmm. right? So that's another reason that I think that they're kind of capping it at ten percent. 
not capping it like you can't give more than 10%, but having the demand be no more than 10%. As, as long as we're speaking about the 10% thing, uh, Scott Alexander wrote a post called Nobody is Perfect, Everything is Commensurable. Commens- commensurable? Is that how you pronounce it? Which this post was aimed at the people who are uh, the typical Singarian people, very concerned that they're not spending their entire lives just helping other people, racked with guilt that they are not doing everything he can. And uh, his argument is really 10% is enough, guys. Donate 10%, call yourself a good person, and get on with your life because you can give more if you want to, but once you've given 10%, you're good enough. And his argument was, I'm just going to read this uh, verbatim, because it's it's Scott Alexander. He's already written it as good as can be written. <laughs> a, <laughs> a world in which everyone gives 10% of their income to charity is a world where about $7 trillion go to charity a year. Solving global poverty forever is estimated to cost about $100 billion a year for the couple decade length of the project. That's about 2% of the money that would suddenly become available. If charity got $7 trillion a year, the first year would give us enough to solve global poverty, <laughs> eliminate all treatable diseases, fund research into the untreatable ones for approximately the next forever, <laughs> educate anybody who needs educating, feed anybody who needs feeding, fund an unparalleled renaissance in the arts, permanently save every rainforest in the world, and have enough left over to launch five or six different manned missions to Mars. That would be the first year. <laughs> if you give 10% per, per year, you have absolutely done your part in making that world a reality. You can honestly say, well, it's not my fault that everyone else is still dragging their feet. And I, I, that is one of those posts that makes me want to give 10% because I want to be part of that project. Yeah. Uh, just to come to the defense of the Singerian position and Peter Singer's arguments in general... Uh, his his arguments sort of lead you down this daisy chain to where, unless you're compar- he uses the phrase, at least in his original 70s essay, sacrificing something of comparable moral worth. He says that unless you're doing that, you're not, you're, you're, you're essentially valuing whatever it is you're buying instead over a human, over saving humans. So that that's the slippery slope that slides you all the way down to, you know, the poorest person in the country, right? But his practical proposals aren't that extreme. And so they, the people might still be racked with guilt because they, they realize that they can't live up to the impossible Peter Singer utilitarian standard. But yeah, he, he, he advocates for 10% mainly because he, I think, believes that the number of people that he can get to give 10% is more than the number of people that he can get to give 98%. So he is being an effective altruist by only asking for 10% rather than 98 It sounds kind of counterintuitive, but most yes, good. exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting. You're making me think about something that Tim told me about recently. Um, there was a general world knowledge survey. And one of the questions was, in which of these countries do people give the most to charity per capita? Mm-hmm. And it mentioned the US and then it mentioned a country like Sweden and a couple others. And a lot of people answer Sweden. Mm. And my immediate answer was, it's got to be the US. Yeah. And here's why. Sweden's got really high taxes. And if I know anything, it's that people, they feel certain responsibility to give. And then once they have reached that, and in in our case, we're talking about 10%, maybe once we've reached 10%, they feel like they've done it. Well, because people in Sweden have very high taxes, they give a very small amount in addition to charity. They feel that's 
obligation has been discharged through their taxes. Obligation discharged through the taxes. Exactly. That's that's one of the reasons the- I kind of dislike that churches um, are counted as charitable organizations. Because while they do do some good, they uh, a lot of times use the money for not such good things. And if people are tithing their 10% to the church, they are less likely to give to other things, I think. I I'm think not we would sure argue about that. that. I thought you know? that um, people who attend church, people who are religious are more charitable I've than also people heard that, who are that not. That includes their 10% uh, to the does church. Does it though? I Dun imagine dead. it depends on We're who. We're going to find out. I imagine it depends <laughs> on who's doing the survey. But I do have the numbers about U.S.'s uh, donating numbers. How much do you think of your taxes go to foreign aid? Oh. Actually, you know what? You guys are probably a more calibrated bunch, especially since I just ruined the thought exp- so since I ruined the experiment. So what you're talking about, Stephen, is that people often think that a lot more goes to foreign aid than it does. Median well, polls put them on 15 to 20%. Really? Which is, yeah. Oh, I've which known is, for a long time it's less than 1%. Yeah, which it's is actually, far, far, far higher. Yeah, so it's it's pretty low. Point um, one. 0.18. 0.18%. So, which is, which is more than other countries. And then as far as our uh, U.S.'s gross income from private philanthropy is 0.07%. So that's seven cents in every hundred dollars. And yet we are still the most charitable nation in the world. That depends on how you calculate those numbers. So like if you calculate in donating your time, uh, some other countries come up higher after that because they give more than we do. In time, but in time, and I guess I'm not sure how they're cal- how they're doing the math for money I hope it's versus not in time. Blankets, <laughs> probably is, <laughs> but yeah. So the but unfortunately, point or so point one eight of the U.S. is uh, of your taxes in the U.S. go to aid. I think it's point one eight go to foreign aid, but some larger percent. I think it's two point two percent goes to charity, but one third of that goes to religious organizations, and I think another third goes to like education, which doesn't really include like scholarships for, you know, third world poor people. It includes like subsidizing a new stadium or something. Have you, uh, are you on the optimal memes for cosmopolitan teens? Yes. Okay. Every time there's another, uh, one of those, uh, grants issued, I, I believe just a few weeks ago, uh, there was some rich guy that gave Harvard another million dollar trust for something. Uh, and it's, it's Harvard. They don't need another million dollars. And there's always a meme that comes up, you know, showing like, oh, how much money could have been doing something good <laughs> as opposed to giving Harvard even more money. Yeah, it's tough. And so I think that's... that's Harvard the, does some cool stuff. It does do some cool stuff, yes. But a million dollars is a lot for people that are already in the top 1% of the US. I, I would argue that that's probably not an effective use of charity dollars. To give it to Harvard. Um, On the other hand, I mean, the colleges are where we do a lot of our basic research. So it's not nothing, but... And uh, Harvard's doing a lot of cutting-edge research. But but that million dollars... law school? No. No? Harvard has a... It has all of the things. Oh, it does? Yes. Okay. It's a really fully functional college. Harvard Law is popular, though. Okay. In Um, fact, um, I know... I believe that they're doing really great cutting-edge Alzheimer's research. Oh, Fantastic. But that said, did this Which million dollars... we're all concerned about, right? Uh, actually, yes. Yeah. yeah. Did this million dollars go to funding grant money for research or to go to building a new wing in a library, right? Right. So people probably get to decide that when they donate to Harvard. And many of them probably want their name on a, on a plaque as you walk into a building in an, on an ancient, you know, I guess ancient historically in the U.S. standards campus than, you know, on the bottom of some research paper that 50 people are going to read, right? Yeah. So... I totally um, want to get someone to debate this now because I know there is some debate in the community as to whether money should be used to give, you know, people malaria drugs and and food right now or if it should be used for basic research, which will pay off in a few decades. 
That's a really important question. That's or sooner, depending. I mean, you could specifically give your money to things that you know are going to pay off in just a couple of years mm-hmm. in terms of research. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Why not? I mean, what do would, you what would know that it would pay you? off in a couple of years, though? Well, there are things that are more likely to pay off and things okay. that are less likely. So if you're asking people for projections, right. so when can this when can this be a viable vaccine? Mm-hmm. How close are we to making that happen? How, how many dollars are we away from making that happen? Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, some basic fundamental research sometimes doesn't pay off for hundreds of years, but it's super important anyway. So that raises the question. So that would make it less effective. I don't know. Would it? Yes. That actually... Because it absolutely what is... would, because there's a discount on things that happen further away from now. Yeah, but what is more effective in the long term than Francis Bacon's, you know, launching of the scientific revolution? That has made huge uh, impacts on, on human life, and that took several hundred years to start paying dividends. So this was something I was going to say for, like, bonus at the end if we had time, but we're right on it. So <laughs> I give most of my charity money to immediate aid for the world's poorest people, which currently isn't that much money. I don't make that much, but I plan to make more and I plan to give more and feel awesome. But I give a little bit every year when the Machine Intelligence Research Institute is doing its annual drive or someone's matching donations two for one, because that way I can double my money. Mm-hmm. So for 50 bucks, I'm now donating 100. An argument can be made pretty soundly that, you know, look, if in the next century we succeed in the FAI project and bring about utopia for everybody. Well, that's just maximized utilons forever. And it's hard to say that if if you can bring that about one day earlier, you're saving however many number of people from dying or something, right? And you're saving, you're bringing about utopia a day earlier. Yeah, Uh, but the chance for payoff, the chance for payoff is, so you were talking about Sir Francis Bacon, Mm -hmm. right? The scientific revolution. Mm -hmm. If you were choosing where your charity dollars went back then, there's no way it would be effective to give it to him. No. No, because there's no way you would know. Right. So. But I'm glad that people did anyway. And that is that is one <laughs> of the reasons. People in Sir Bacon. Well, that is one of the reasons there is this uh, debate going on, because you want to do what is actually most effective. And if that is donating to Sir Francis Bacon for a couple hundred years, rather than saving the people that have, you know, what is it? Crickets? Not crickets. When your bones get all wobbly because... Rickets. Rickets, yes. Rather than saving the orphans that have rickets because they're working in the mines, then... Crickets. <laughs> then that is that is what you want to do. They wish they had effective. crickets. Uh, I also would like to quickly interject um, because I think you are um, misrepresenting what Miri does. Uh, while I, having friendly AI would be awesome, and I also would like to do that, Miri does not actually work on creating friendly AI. What they work on is preventing... Um, they work on the AI alignment problem, which is making sure that, trying to make sure that once an AI does arise, it, it will not um, destroy all of humanity. Putting it that way is makes people think of Terminator and Skynet, which is stupid, but uh, it will not have goals. Which that, is awesome. Well, I mean, yeah, it is a great movie. But uh, so that when the AI is made, it will not have goals that are different enough from human goals that it ends up in uh, it taking over all our resources and using them for purposes that we consider meaningless, valueless. Sure. And that's that's a fair distinction. And So they're not uh, trying to create an FI. They're trying to make the FI that maybe does come about be aligned to our values. Right. And I should have, I guess, been clear about that. And I think that was the expressed goal of the Singular Institute, which they changed to Miri a few years ago. So yeah, good, fair point. Uh, they're, they're not, I guess, yeah, they're trying to solve the problems of how to make things 
better. They're not actually sitting there writing this thing out and starting it now. I mean, if um, anything, the stated position of some of their uh, members is that we would like to prevent uh, AI being made. The longer we can push that out, the more time we have to make it actually be a friendly one rather than an unfriendly one. Yeah, and that's, that's a completely reasonable and, and obvious, I think, position that anyone should take. You can't just rush to the, to the end line and hope everything works out great, right? Hey, where can people find effective charities, lists of effective charities? Oh, goodness. Uh, okay, so... GiveWell. GiveWell. GiveWell.org. They research charities and using various metrics t- try to determine which ones are the most effective at reducing misery in the world yes. and saving human lives. They are specifically interested in disease, Yes, as far as I can tell. Because so, diseases seem to be the cheapest on per dollar in life saved right now. In terms of humans. Yes. So if you're concerned about animals... There is another group called um, Animal Charity Evaluators. And that's kind of interesting because I think recently an article came out saying that some of the charities that they've evaluated and listed as the highest worth charities, which are pamphlet pumping charities, pretty much, um, they're vegan advocacy charities, that the research on them um, is flawed. That Yes, that is also what I saw. If the, you guys can name names, this might actually help. I'm not saying to... The, the impression I got was that uh, Flawed would be putting it lightly. That the pamphlets did almost nothing, and there was some serious problems with the research. So, um, take that with a grain of salt, I guess, when you're looking at, at animal-saving charities. But on the plus side, this has come to light, and they are working on rectifying it. Yeah, so that's good. So, it's not like they're trying to hide their priests or whatever. Yeah, um, something else that I, I did end up giving to was the Good Food Institute, okay. which was also listed by animal charity evaluators, along with the other two, which now we're wondering, the, the two vegan advocacy groups, which now we're wondering how effective they really are. The Good Food Institute is a relatively new charity, which what it does is it helps fake meat and lab-grown meat mm. kind of get to market. Um, I also gave to the Against Malaria Foundation. And that is almost always listed as GiveWell's first charity because they send out treated bed nets in malaria-prone areas, and that saves children's lives. Part of what GiveWell does is, well, they came about from two rich people who were, well, they had great jobs. They're making more than they could reasonably spend. They're like, well, who should we donate to? And I think they were like stockbrokers or hedge fund managers and they were calling around to different charities asking, hey, how effective are you guys? What's going on here? And they were met mostly with hostility, like, you know, what are you guys asking for? We don't, you know, whatever. But it turned out they just didn't have that information. And part of that is because paying a statistician to keep track of your stuff is something that you have to do if you want to provide these numbers. So GiveWell evaluates the effectiveness of charities based off of their expressed goals. And I think they have separate categories on, on GiveWell's website. So if you're, if you're interested in, say, if it's not curing disease, you can look for ones that are about um, treating existing illnesses or for developing new medicine or new, new vaccines. But it is very medical. You cannot find any animal charities on there at all. I would like to give a very strong recommendation to uh, a website, the Effective Altruism Forums. They're at effective-altruism.com. It's where a lot of the Effective Altruism community goes and discusses these things, shares what research they do have, and uh, talks about subjects of, uh, of interest to the community. All right. Thank oh. you for sharing. Yeah, I'll be sure to check that one out, too. Are no. you ready to close? Not quite. I feel like we didn't. Yeah, I, I had a couple more another, things. Yeah. So part of it, I mean, there's a bunch of other objections that people have to effective to effective altruism. So, I mean, part of it is, you know, 
why are you telling me that my the way that I satisfy my impulse to be charitable isn't good enough? Part of it is I can imagine at least one person that I know saying, I'm not interested in maximizing the number of healthy humans out there. Not that they're going to spend their time killing people, but that some people worry about like overpopulation or something, right? Or they're worried that the more people that make it through childhood just grow on to, go on to have miserable lives and life's terrible. So if, if for whatever reason you have a position like that, like we had a guest on, on one of our earlier episodes, Jason Hurtrider, I don't think would be an advocate for like bed nets for children, right? I think um, he would be. He actually is, yeah. Well, I know that he's an effective altruist, but there are other ways to effectively altruistically donate. Yes, um, I, I believe his position is that if he could kill absolutely everything, he would. But until then, people should have better lives. Fair enough. Uh, so maybe not Jason in particular, but there are some people who I think who are concerned about overpopulation, and there I, are charities that you can give to that do that are effective. I would like to point out if they are concerned about overpopulation, reducing child mortality is one of the best things you can do to combat overpopulation because once people can count on their children living, uh, they form, first of all, they form more emotional bonds with them, which helps a lot uh, for the child's well-being. But also more importantly, they don't feel like they have to have a lot of children as, you know, spare children in case the other ones die, to put it bluntly. Uh, the, the more child mortality is reduced, the more population growth actually tends to decrease. Absolutely. And there's also like international versions of Planned Parenthood. I think a charity called Interplast does like surgery that treats injuries that are routine to fix in the United States, but, um, you know, like super basic corrective eye surgery, mm. uh, which treats burns or wounds so that you can, you can use your hands again and keep working for the next 50 years yeah. uh, rather than just die in your 20s. So there, there are other ways to be an effective altruist rather than just, I guess, what I'm trying to say, give straight to... I guess give malaria or the against malaria foundation or whatever. Right. Uh, in other words, you're, it depends on what your goals are. Yeah. The stress the effective altruism is not always about saving lives. Yeah. Exactly. It's the, whatever you want to point your energy at. And yeah. the, the stress of it is that it's evidence-based charity that you're, you're actually caring about what your money does and how well it does. Right. Um, the, the, the effective altruism isn't like donate to these 10 charities that we have determined are the best charities. It's, take the time to look into these things and actually care that you're getting the most bang for your buck. That's that's what I was trying to stress. I feel like there's this attitude that it's like, oh, well, you know, if I'm not interested in, in alleviating suffering in Africa for some reason, then I'm not going to be an effective altruist. And I don't want people to walk away with that. While I think you should care about those things, you can care about things locally. Uh, you know, be an what, effective altruist at home. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it's some, some rally in your town or something or other, there are good ways and bad ways to spend your time and money. And that's that's sort of the point. I have a, an anecdote that's kind of a more extreme version of what you went through, Inyash, okay. except it was just one friend. We were li- we, He was my roommate at the time, and we were leaving King Supers in, like, December, where there's the person in the Santa suit chiming the bell for the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. And he puts his change, which is, you know, a little under a dollar in the guy's bucket. And I was like, you realize that they're like an anti-gay... Uh, anti Harry Potter, like all the, like all the, all the absurd things that you think about, like extreme religious groups are against the United States. That's what they're, that's what they support, right? And my friend was, my friend's gay, oh. and I was like, you realize that you're, you're kind of actually shooting yourself in the foot. And we were talking about this on the way back to his car, and he was like, I just felt good, like I just felt good giving it. And I was like, even to them, and he 
even to them was, okay. was his answer. And I was like, okay, so that was not an effective use of your charity money, but it, it did effectively give him the, the warm fuzzy, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it was less than a dollar. Right. That's what he was going for. So, And also, you probably ruined it for him, but he just didn't want to admit it. I hope uh, I ruined it for him because then he won't do it again. <laughs> uh, I would <laughs> this, also, this, is, this is like, that's almost anti-charity, right? <laughs> I would also like to point out that the Salvation Army contests these charges. They say that there was one branch that was very problematic, but they have dealt with them and they dislike being tarred. Fair enough. Uh, I I don't know how true either side is, but uh, we can link to both sides. And... I, I appreciate you giving them balance. What I read was 10, 15 years ago, and it, yeah. and it, it successfully tarred them for me forever. So right. if, if there is a charitable version of their position and they're doing better stuff than I was aware of, then good on them. From, from what I've heard, they've really tried to clean up the act quite a bit. That yeah, said, I think like get the rid Boy of the bad Scouts. actors. The what? It's like the Boy Scouts. Are the Boy Scouts better now? Yeah. Okay. They were great for a while, then they got then they got really bad, then they got... Well, they were bought by the Mormons. Yeah. And so the Mormons imposed their ideology, and people were like, screw you guys, and they're like, oh. Yeah, it was... That was fun, too. This is Zemiash with an interjection. I did some quick Googling after we recorded. The Salvation Army removed the last of its anti-gay wording from its official statements and documents in 2013. So, a bit late to the game, but at least they're working on it. On the other hand, they are still a fundamentalist Christian organization whose core mission includes converting people to their religion. So any good that they might do is offset by that, which is another thing to take into consideration. I I feel like I came off kind of harsh saying you have an obligation to give to charity. I'm, I'll be happy to refine that if anyone writes in with any specific questions. But I think for now, if you guys are ready, we can move on to... I have one last thing I would like to chime in on. Uh, I... I'm a big fan of Eliezer Yudkowsky's post, uh, Money is the Unit of Caring, where he, this is where I got my $5 test from, so probably not my own thing. Uh, <laughs> he never mentioned $5, but uh, he did mention that lots of people are very willing to make bold statements and, and be out there in front, and then when you ask them to actually give $5 rather than, you know, what that $5 could buy, all of a sudden it's very personal and painful. And I mean, I agree it it can be because at least when you're spending the $5 on a coffee, you know you're getting a coffee and you know what good will come of that. Whereas if you give your $5 to a organization, you no longer have control over that $5. You don't really know if it's going to anything good and if this will have any effect on the world at all. It's, it's kind of like throwing your money in the dark and hoping for the best. So yes, it is painful to take a risk rather than going with this sure, you know, you know you're going to get this nutrition and you know you're going to get this great taste in your mouth. So it, it is a bit of a sacrifice, but uh, money is really how you show caring. That's how you can tell that you care about something because you really are willing to give it $5 rather than getting that nutrition and that joy. $5 doesn't do terribly much it on doesn't. its own, yeah. but um, if, no, you're, if you're following the, the crowdfunding ethos, then it's a start. And when other people see you giving, then if they pitch in, Everybody giving $5 is way, way better. Yeah. And if you want to give more, that means you care even more. I mean, money is how we show caring a lot of the times because money really is so useful that by giving it away, you're showing you care about something. There's also fun experiments where people, I mean, so everyone knows this is one of those things from the Department of Science of things you already knew, but now we've demonstrated. People go really funny in the head when you make them think about money. You can be, you know, in one of those rooms where you're doing the standard pitch of, you know, here's this little girl and here's a picture of her and here's what she needs and here's how she's dying and here's how you can save her. If the wallpaper on your computer is denominations of dollar bills, mm -hmm. people give substantially less 
Hmm. You don't even have to talk about the money. You don't have to 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 bring it to their mind. But just having this reminder of of like cash, I think it's just that 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 resource hoarding that's built into us, right? So Did it replicate. I believe so. I've seen it in more than one book by popular authors over years. It could have still just been the one thing, though, because I remember I, there was a thing for a long time where there was one study that showed uh, if people see a picture of eyes, they become more moral because like, oh, there's something watching me. 20 years later, it's been cited so many times in all these publications, and 20 years later, they tried to replicate the results and they couldn't do it. Yeah, sounds like a lot of social science. Yeah. That, sounds like I've, a lot of fundraising science. I, I know somebody who's a photographer who specifically tried to get the eyes or something that looked like an eye of critically endangered species to help connect with people. It, it, it certainly makes intuitive sense, but that doesn't actually mean that much. Hmm. I, yeah, I'm the same way. I can see it going both ways. Like on the one hand, if there's an animal looking you in the eyes and you're about to be violent to it, you know, you're, you're much less likely to, some people are probably less likely to do it. But if it's faceless, like a, like a starfish or something, and it's like, I don't, I, I don't even know where it would be showing me its emotions. It therefore it doesn't have any. But yeah, that that's the kind of thing that I could see research going both ways. Anyone's free to look up. It was in Science uh, by Kathleen Voss, Nicole Mead, and Miranda Good, G-O-O-D-E, Gooday, Good. And that was about that that one with uh, the money. Yes, or no? That's a. Uh, so these are actually different studies. Um, I'm skimming through the life you can save by Peter Singer, which I recommend, and we should have cited directly. Um, it's uh, basically targeted to people who are sort of on board with philanthropy. But there's a little page in here where you can sign to the uh, the I pledge and better bang for your buck. Give this book to your friends. There's like 20 slots on here, and then <laughs> then it asks when this page is full, please mail a copy to Peter Singer at. Princeton University, and then that with all Adam online, which is something that we didn't mention for the for the pledge that it's online so that everybody who cares to look up can know that you that you say you donate that much that and they can know that I say I do it. Well, unfortunately, that's all that that's all that they can know. Yeah, me being being cynical, somebody could take it just for the prestige. But you know, we talked about that signaling. Yeah, th- they don't ask you to post your receipts on there or anything. Anyway, the point is that yeah, that charity or that that website that list is public, so you get all the perks of being visible. I think we've we've covered everything. Yeah, okay. I hope I hope so, to get listener feedback about this because there's a lot of things that we didn't talk about that I'm hoping someone asks about. So, but okay. no spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> no spoilers. Okay, I hope so too. Now, if you don't mind, we got a an email that I'd like to read. This is from Phil. Phil says, "Hello." In the most recent episode of the podcast, Tinder actually, the conspirators express slight confusion over the origin and the use of the term "social justice warrior." Given its current connotations, you may be surprised where the term originated and who it originally referred to. The term originated on internet forums in the early aughts, in the early OOs, as a portmanteau of social justice and keyboard warrior. If you're not aware, a keyboard warrior was a dismissive term for someone who spent all of their time making noise online, but never did any actual work, i.e. volunteering, community building, donating, etc., It was used almost exclusively by people who engaged in social justice work as an insult to people who never got away from their keyboards to help people in the real world. The fact that the term is now used as an insult for people who care about race, sex, gender, or other identity issues today is an odd quirk of history and language evolution. Uh, Note, keep in mind, this was over a decade ago, the keyboard warrior term was being used. Online activity didn't have the same reach or impact it does today. Well, thank you for writing in. We're all the wiser. Yeah, I appreciate you writing in as well. I didn't know about the history of the word. I did have a little 
I guess, quibble with at least the way that I colloquially see the words social justice warrior used. It's not used to insult people who, quote, care about race, sex, gender, or other identity issues today. I think it's more used for people who, like, generate social media campaigns against like professors that they found offensive or i think i think it's much more at least the way i see it for like the fringe people that most of us probably don't think are doing effective altruism (laughs) um who are are being very fair um maybe that's how you see it used that is how i see it used it was used against me in the last episode yes but i think he used it derisively talk like assuming that you're one of those people um, all he all he knows is that I have out of the mainstream ideas about gender. That is that is it. That's what he was going on. And I see it used. I see it thrown at people who are just like me, or you know, care about care about race in different ways. But to I, care about social justice. Period. I've I've heard that term used at, on those people as a derogatory term. Yeah, I. I I have so too, but I, I think that would be misapplied to somebody like you who doesn't, you know, warrior yourself out there on, you know, isn't a keyboard warrior, right? I mean, unless maybe you are, but I'm, I'm enough of a warrior. I've talked about my thoughts on air. I guess I've shared them. That's all it takes. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't defend anyone being pejorative or mean to anybody, even people that we can agree are doing inappropriate and mean things on the internet. It wouldn't make sense. I would assume for somebody to insult you for having a wide care net. Um, and if that's why they're insulting you, then yeah, they're, they're, they're missing a mark in, in more than one way. I was, I was assuming that they were lumping you in with these bad people, you know, so like there's, there's, uh, well, certain for certain groups, certain words just start to mean bad. Like, uh, for a lot of conservatives, the word liberal is a slur. Sure. When you call someone a liberal, that means they're a bad person. And we don't have that connotation to liberal. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I had no idea that the word social justice warrior had that wide of a net. If that's the case, then I, I need to, to reevaluate. I I always, always saw it in the context of people who, and I can link to a hundred things if anyone cares. You know, like uh, we talked about um, Jonathan Haidt a couple episodes ago. He showed this awesome video that he'd been showing for, you know, however many, how long he's been teaching and has been, it's been around for 50 years. It's this uh, fun exploration into, I guess, what they call the yuck reaction in philosophy, where people are opposed to something, not for any good reason, other than it gets kind of gross. The classic example is like an incestual sibling couple. And people will say, well, you know, bad genes for their offspring, poor family relations. And the instructor could then, you know, refute all of those saying, well, they're both infertile, none of them have families, etc. Now what's wrong with it? And they always fall back on, well, it's gross, but no one, no one puts that forward like as an actual argument, but that's where they've been coming from the whole time. And Anyway, so he showed this video, and I think the person in the video, again, this was like 50 years ago, they had said that I might personally find the sight of two men kissing unpleasant, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it. And there was a girl in his class who apparently before class had even ended had written the dean, and her friends had started a social media attack against him. This took up six months of his life. He almost lost his job, and it was all over just showing this video. And he was like, I wrote a paper. I put forward research on, I forget what it was specifically, something about as pro-gay as a, as a professor could possibly be. And so this this is what comes to my mind when I hear social justice warriors. Maybe that's why people use it as an insult. Because it's hard to say, like, why it's an insult that you care about somebody, right? Yeah. I, I once saw a video of a guy being assaulted, like physically assaulted for his hairstyle. That is also a bad thing. What was his hairstyle? Dreadlocks and he was a white guy. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, those. I think those are people picturing the picture social justice warriors. At least right. that's what I pictured. So that... And now that I know that there's a wider net for it, that doesn't seem quite so disingenuous to me. But the way that it was phrased from my previous understanding made it sound like it was almost like 
And I'd like to clarify, when I say physically assaulted, I don't mean like he was beaten up. This person was verbally berating him and then like grabbed his backpack and yanked it or something. So it wasn't like he walked away with a bruise. But again, it was a physical manhandling. Yeah, no one should be assaulted for how they dress or or at least I would argue some some might disagree. And I think that they would be wrong. You know, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of like, if you're not hurting anybody, you shouldn't be beaten up in the street. That's just me. But, sorry, you had, you had some more feedback, Inyash? Uh, I have two pieces of feedback that have gone way back to the Animals episodes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we haven't covered it yet? No, but these were new. <gasps> Tell me. We have people catching up with older episodes now. So, Daystar Eld, who I would like to say real quick, is from the Rationally Writing podcast and also uh, writes rational fiction, which we should have an episode about sometime, but we say that about a lot of things. Anyways, Daystar Eld says that uh, it was asserted by another listener that we can't know, in quotes, what an animal is thinking in the same way we can't even know what a human is thinking, or if they're thinking at all, since we're just making up what we believe animals think the same way we do with other humans. Uh, It was implied that we can't even know what other humans are thinking and just make up what their beliefs are, so how can we pretend to know what animals are thinking or what they value? Isn't this a false equivalence that throws out what evidence we do have? Namely, we know that the physiology of the brain has a connection to intelligence slash consciousness, even if we don't fully understand that connection or how our brains work. And we know that other humans have brains similar to our own. So even if we don't know how intelligent animals are with their very different brains, we do know that other humans share the same overall brain structure and complexity as ourselves, and we at least can be sure that we ourselves are intelligent slash conscious. So it's strange to me to ignore that and pretend that all animals and humans operate out of an equally opaque black box. Was that a response to something that we said or a response to one of the comments on that episode? I believe it's a response to something that I said, since I, I was saying that you can't even know what other humans are thinking. Well, you can't know, no, but you can you can ask and get reports and you can be yeah. pretty sure that there's something going on in there. Because like, like they said, you have a, they have a brain like yours. That implies that there's probably something more akin in your head that's, akin, that's like in mine than there is in this soundboard, right? Yeah. That's a really good point, and I, I don't think that's evidence that we should ignore. No, he says as a note that that this isn't strong evidence for the assertion animals aren't conscious, or even animals aren't as intelligent as humans. He's not discounting those possibilities at all, just that it's a stretch to say that it's not at least strong evidence that other humans probably are conscious as much as I am, while animals might not be. You know, uh, Edgar from that episode wrote us, mind if I read his comment? Please do. If you don't recall or you didn't hear the episode, we used Edgar's comments, um, kind of telling us how would you don't don't talk about stuff you don't know because you don't you don't know how animals feel. Um, as a jumping off point for that entire episode for two episodes. <laughs> so from Edgar, I realize this follow up's rather belated, but I did a bad job of articulating my point at the time. I listened to the episode. I kind of shrugged it off, but. After listening to whichever more recent episode it was where my comment came up again, I feel I should clarify my meaning. Here it goes. I said some stuff to the effect of, don't just make stuff up. Talk about what you know. I just assumed that everyone would take from this meaning I intended, namely, do more science than talk about the results. What counts as known stuff? Science stuff, of course. As so often happens, I was interpreted in a slightly different manner. (laughs) I seem to have been read as questioning the limits of our capacity to know, or positing that there are some things, the minds of animals in this case, that are inherently unknowable, although I was chagrined at the realization that I left out my actual point. After listening to what you made of my comment, I reconsidered re-articulating myself. 
The point I was interpreted as making seemed to serve as something of a devil's advocate role on the podcast, prompting some interesting discussions. As time wears on, I would like to say what he originally meant. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And here it is. There are limits to where unbridled speculation can take you. It's not a bad thing to pretend your way into the mind of a mantis shrimp or onto the surface of the sun, and those who wish to truly know may do these things in order to procure hypotheses. Despite this, if you do not let your imaginings be ruled by reality, you can go nowhere but deeper into your own imagination. I apologize for my previous lack of clarity. Thank you so much for clarifying your point, Edgar, and we really appreciate it. That was really good clarification. I, I think we all appreciate it, and we appreciate uh, you letting us uncharitably interpret your first message to give us give us such a, a long discussion. So whether that might not have been something that you said, but that's something that some hypothetical person probably would say. And so we let's let's amend what we were talking about instead of beating up your position to beating up some hypothetical persons. I also really enjoyed uh, your comment. Thank you. And I specifically uh, highlighted the last line. And really appreciated that because I feel that is one of the, when we remember we were talking about the classical what a philosopher looks like thing, Mm -hmm. and we went back to Socrates, or Socrates, as they call him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that always annoyed me about the Greek philosophers is that they just sat around and thought a lot and didn't actually go out into the real world and test what they thought about against the natural world. And they would have made so much more progress if they had just done that. But apparently it was considered plebeian to get your hands dirty with the real world. Uh, and I have a related comment on that. that okay. One, I had, a, I had a professor once call the Greek philosophers the three-year-olds of Western history. <laughs> okay. And because they're just why on everything. Mm-hmm. And two, I think Aristotle himself asserted that men have more teeth than women, which would have been, as far as, you know, talking about getting your hands dirty and solving a quick empirical problem, he could have opened Mrs. Aristotle's mouth and counted her teeth and then counted his own and falsified that position. But it's in one of his books. (laughs) Maybe his wife had a missing tooth. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned that. Maybe they didn't have the good rules for generalizing from one example. Right. But still, this this would have been a solvable or a, a correctable mistake at that time even, right? Yeah. So, Edgar, I deeply appreciate your your imaginations must be ruled by reality point. All um, right. Well, thank you. Last thing I want to cover. This is our one-year episode. That's right. This, oh, one year ago we aired our first episode. That's right. We've been doing episode every two weeks for the last 26 weeks. So, here we are at a one-year anniversary. Well, we've been doing it for 52 weeks, which gave us 26 episodes. Right. 26 episodes, yeah. Anyway, happy birthday, Yay! Bayesian Conspiracy. Happy birthday, the Bayesian Conspiracy. Two more years and we can be Greek philosophers. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can contact us at Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. You can go to our website at thebayesianconspiracy.com. And you can comment on our subreddit, Bayesian Conspiracy. At our website, thebasingconspiracy.com, we do have a bunch of links to various things that we talk about in each episode. There is also now a direct link to the subreddit. We do now have two Patreon donors, and we would like to thank them personally. Uh, Adam donated at the $4 level, where he gets thanked on air. Adam, if you want to send us your full name or anything like that, we will read it on air as a major thanks. And we also have one other donor at the $1 level. Nick, thank you. And both of them will go up on our permanent. These people have donated at least $1 to us page. We appreciate it. And we're working on expanding the site a little bit too. We're going to include a uh, sub tab for other podcasts that we're listening to that if that some people of our audience might find interesting during the off weeks that we're not on the air. So I think that's it. Yep. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.